Thank you, James. Appreciate that. Um, it's a privilege just to be in worship this morning together and to open up the Lord's Word for us. We'll get there in just a moment. A couple other things just to uh, make you aware of. Uh, last week we mentioned our dear brother Edgar Bartlett uh, went to be with the Lord and is with Jesus uh, in his presence. And we will miss Edgar, who is a fixture and a faithful member of this body for many years and uh, prayed many prayers uh, for uh, us and for this church. Uh, his services are going to be on Tuesday, so coming up this Tuesday, right here at Mount Hope, right in our sanctuary. So 9.30 to 11 o'clock, there'll be a visitation time right here in the sanctuary. And then at 11 o'clock will be the funeral service um, right here. And if you're able to join us, we uh, would love to have you here as we celebrate uh, the life, 98 years of uh, this man who served, loved the Lord, loved this church, and was a blessing to many of us. And so that's this Tuesday. I'd love to have you with us here. One other item I wanted to uh, update you on that has been a little while since I've mentioned. A couple months ago, uh, if you were here, I mentioned that we were talking with a church in Woburn, uh, about possibly another location for Mount Hope there. And I just wanted to kind of bring you up to date on that and where we're at with that. So uh, the bottom line is that is not going to work out. Uh, we've kind of, that just didn't uh, work out for us or for them in this case. And that's okay. But thank you for praying with us and helping us try to discern if that was the next step for Mount Hope. A couple things you can continue to be praying for. One is this. We do believe there'll be another location that God will open up for us to open up another location to reach people we're not able to reach with our Burlington and our Belmont locations that we currently are meeting at. When we opened Belmont uh, about seven years ago, what we found is the Lord opened up ways and people for us to reach that we not, we're not able to reach when we're just in Burlington. So we do believe the Lord will have us to open up more locations, but this particular one doesn't look like that was the road the Lord had, the door the Lord opened for us. So continue to pray about what that next opportunity, that next location is. And I'd ask you to pray for First Church in Woburn. Um, they're still trying to discern what their next step is. They've got a kind of a small core body of believers that's left in this congregation that has been there. Believe it or not, this church was planted in 1640. Uh, they have been, that's why they're called First Church. They've been around a while. Um, and uh, the building was built in 1860. And so they have a really large building, really large space, very awesome location right in downtown Woburn. And so they are praying and discerning how the Lord is going to be able to uh, just use them to keep uh, a gospel presence in that place. And so pray for First Church in Woburn that God would direct and guide them as well. And thank you for your prayers as we just continue to seek the Lord's direction in, uh, in moving forward, in helping to serve the Lord and uh, be effective in the harvest field where he has placed us. So... Uh, thank you for that. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. If you want to turn there, we are in this series, Foolish Relationships. I thought I saw Aaron and Jesse Sipley here. Are they, did they leave? Did I, did I, did they just, I, they went into the kids' room? All right, well, somewhere Aaron and Jesse and Sipley here who led worship at Mount Hope for many years. So if you see them in the hallway and you know them, welcome Aaron and Jesse. We're glad to have them visiting with us uh, today. We're continuing in this series, Foolish Relationships. We started it last week. 
You know, I think we've all at times uh, done things or seen people do things that may look foolish in the moment, but in the long term, you realize how wise they were. Uh, last, um, Wendy and I were watching, sitting down, watching uh, last week's episode of 60 Minutes. And I turned on the TV and I said, you know, we're looking for something to watch. I said, old people watch 60 Minutes. She said, we're old. I'm like, all right, I put on 60 Minutes. Um, but we were watching it on DVR, so I feel like that's not as old, but I don't know. But anyway, we were watching 60 Minutes last week, and um, they, had a set, they, had a, they had a part of the episode on preppers. Anybody know what a prepper is? Preppers? A couple, yeah, couple of you like, yeah, I know, I'm in, right? But I'm not raising my hand. Um, but some of you know a prepper is someone who takes time to prepare for what may be a doomsday scenario, or what may just be an unexpected scenario. And if you, like several years ago, preppers were in a real minority, maybe two to three percent of our population were what we'd call preppers, fell in this category, would self-identify as a prepper. Uh, this segment on 60 Minutes was saying somewhere near 10 percent of the American population now is somewhat prepared, has taken steps to prepare for uh, something unexpected. Now, that can be something from as simple as, you know, having a couple weeks' supply of water, some canned goods, maybe you have a generator. Like, you, you can, you're prepared if something's going to, you know, take you, you know, take you down from your normal life for a few days or maybe even a week. And then there's others that are on the other end of the spectrum, and, you know, you've got a bug-out bag, you've got a plan, you're ready to go. And then there's others even further down the spectrum that they were highlighting on this episode of 60 Minutes that spent $2.4 million to have an apartment in a missile silo in Kansas with 16,000-pound doors that closed to withstand a nuclear blast. And that is on the other side, uh, end of the spectrum of prepping. Now, some of us might look at that and you might say, oh, that seems foolish. That seems like a waste of resources. But of course, if something happened... You're going, all right, who was the prepper and will they answer my call? Um, Because you may need help. Things that may look foolish at one point down the road may look really wise. Uh, Right, I gave the example last week of um, uh, Daniel Russo and the Karate Kid, right? You know, he's, he's learning karate by waxing a car and, and sanding floors, and it looks foolish in that moment until later on he realizes he was actually learning karate, right? We have these places in our world, in our lives. Yoda, you know, Luke Skywalker, if you're the Star Wars fan, right? You know, Luke's on the planet, and he's learning how to be a Jedi, and then at one point, he's like, what's the point? Lifting rocks and, you know, doing all this stuff. I need to be out fighting the Empire, and, and you realize that things that look foolish at one point may prove to be wise down the road. That person that's out running on the sidewalk in December, you know, when there's snow banks piled high and there's ice on the sidewalk and you're driving by going foolish. How can they be out running on a day like this? But then on Patriot's Day in April, when they're crossing the finish line on Boylston Street, you realize the wisdom in what they were doing. There are things at times that look foolish, but then later prove to be wise. 
If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, I've got news for you. What you're doing is often going to look foolish in the world around you. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 wrote these words, For the word of the cross is folly, or some translations say foolish, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Paul, writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth in the first century, less than a hundred years away from Jesus' cross and resurrection and ascension, is saying, you know what? What you believe is going to look foolish to the people around you. It's going to look silly in their eyes. And us, 2,100 you know, or so, 2,000 years later, I've got news for you, it still at times is going to look foolish to people around you. Saying that when you tell your friends or your coworkers that you pray to an invisible God, a God that you can't see, that you trust your life and follow a, a God who, uh, who died and on a cross 2,000 years ago, was resurrected and is in heaven today. Many of them are going to say, that's foolish, that's silly. How can you, how can you, you're, you seem like such a smart person. How can you believe that? How can you follow that? It's going to look foolish. Paul said it then, and it's true today as well. But here's the thing we're looking at in this series, that it's not simply what we believe that if we are followers of Christ, it's going to look foolish. It's the way that we live, that if we're living for Christ, will also at times look foolish to the world around us if we're living for Christ. Because the gospel, as we said last week, is not simply a doctrinal statement that we say, yes, I believe this. It's actually a shape of living for us. That the way of Christ is not something just Christ did for us, but it's a way that he has called us to live. This cruciform living, this shape of the cross, this laying down of our lives is not simply what we believe, but Jesus came and also showed us a way to live. And that way to live will at times look foolish to the world around us. And so over the next few weeks, we're just going to look at different aspects of relationships in our lives and how that might look foolish to the world around us. And this morning, I want to take a few minutes just to look at marriage. Now, you may be married, you may not be married in here, uh, but you know people who are married would be my guests, even if you're not married. And we're going to look at a little bit of how the marriage, uh, that when we follow Christ, can look foolish to other people. Now, some of you are saying, all right, done. My marriage already looks foolish. No problem. Check that off. No more words necessary, Pastor. But we're going to look at how it looks, how our marriages are called to look foolish for Christ's sake. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, would you turn there with me? Uh, we're going to be looking at the first few verses of this chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one either in the chair rack right under your seat or in a chair rack right near you. And if you are using a chair rack Bible, it should be on about page 955 would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 955. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free. Take that chair rack Bible. Take it home with you. Consider it your own. It is our gift to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 
and 3. And here's what it says. We're jumping in, by the way, in the middle of a conversation. So I'm going to read it, and then I'll explain a little bit more what's going on here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Are you awake now? Now, people say the Bible's not relevant. And then we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Suddenly the Bible's talking to very relevant issues of our lives. Um, we want to, let me unpack this a little bit for you to show and tell you what's going on here. We're jumping in a little bit in the middle of a conversation. And here's what happened. There's been some correspondence that's been going on between the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to Corinth and planted the church, and this group of Christians who are living in Corinth at the time. There's been some conversations going back and forth. And what seems to have happened is the Christians at Corinth seems to have taken some things that Paul has said and taken it a little too far or taken it in the wrong way. Have you ever had anyone get a text message and receive it in a way you did not intend it to be received? That's kind of what's going on, only Paul didn't have emojis to be able to kind of supplement what he was saying so they would take it the right way. So it seems like they have taken something Paul was saying and, and really taken it the wrong way or taken it too far. And it has to do with this aspect of marriage and the relationship between a husband and a wife, specifically the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And the statement that's in chapter 7, verse 1, if you'll notice, is in quotes. It is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. And so it, what, what seems to be happening is Paul is quoting their words. He's saying, this is what you're saying. This is what I hear that you're saying. And he's addressing this. And why might they be saying this? Well, Paul was single. He wasn't married. He wasn't pursuing marriage, as far as we could tell. He spoke to them against the dangers and warned them against the dangers of sexual immorality. They also were aware that the teaching of Jesus, that one day when this time on this earth is over, that, that we will be as the angels, where we will not be given in marriage and be married. And so he seems to think that what they're taking is saying, well, why don't we just start that now? And why don't we just live for Christ and cut off all these relations even in marriage now? And wouldn't that be better? And Paul is kind of speaking to that because here's what he sees. What he sees is that there's going to be not only frustration with that, but it may even lead to decisions and lives of immorality. And what it was leading to was a separation between what they thought was their body and their spirit. That uh, as long as their spirit was okay with God, that they could almost do whatever they wanted with their body. Um, and so what was happening was uh, in chapter 6, if we had backed up, Paul had to warn some of them about going to temple prostitutes to fulfill some of their desires. And Paul was saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. He was essentially saying what I often say here, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's foolish to call something bad which God calls good. 
And here's something that God has created as a gift, a husband and a wife in marriage uh, with this physically intimate relationship, expressing their love, becoming one. It's a gift of God. It's something good. And it's foolish to call something bad that God has called good. So don't hear what I'm not saying, Paul's saying. He's saying this is a gift from God for you and not something that you should ignore. In fact, it'll cause problems for you when you do. It's not to say it is, 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 isn't e- uh, difficult, not to say it's easy to live out our lives together in marriage if you're married, and uh, it's not to say that even that relationship of physical intimacy between a husband and a wife will just always be easy and never a problem. No, nope, that's not what it's to say, but it's to say don't take this road that you're choosing because it's going to cause you even more problems. It would be foolish to call something bad that God calls good. But the real sticky part of the passage, the real part of the passage that I think we come to is verse 4, where things really come to, and we come to a pass, part of the word that may seem foolish to the world around us. And this is what Paul writes in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And here's a passage of Scripture that is a a difficult passage of Scripture as we come to it. And certainly, if we were to put that out there on a sign out on our church sidewalk or on our church website, out of any context, is going to cause some conversation and going to, I, I, in fact, I thought about, I talked to our team. I said, maybe we should just put just this verse out on Instagram and just put that out and see what happens this, this week. Um, because it is something that in the world around us, you read that and you think, well, this seems foolish and out of step with the world that we live in. This is a passage that's certainly been abused and misused over the years. Well, you should be clear on that. There's certainly people uh, who have come to this passage and have used it to manipulate and in abusive ways in a marriage situation to say, see, you owe me. Give me what I want. This is a passage that has been used to, uh, as a way of power and control and abuse in many marriage situations. And we ought to be aware of that, but we also ought to be aware that even if we say one extreme would be, you know, the person that literally uses this verse and breaks it out and says, see, you have to do this because God said so, we should also recognize that even though that may not be the case with some of us in here, there's a spectrum of power and control that this might be used for. And so, though you may not take that extreme and take out the verse and literally use it in that way, you may be sitting here and hear that verse as a married couple and say, I hope she's listening. I hope he's listening. You know, and we come to this passage and maybe we first think of, what? well, I hope they're getting this. Instead of approaching it and saying, God, what are you saying to me? 
What might you be saying to me? Where are the places where I fall short? Where are the places where you have called me to live in this way and I'm not hitting the mark? Where, you know, it's easy to come to a path. This is one of the easiest passages of scripture to come to and say, what does it mean to someone else? Instead of what is God calling me from? So we need to be careful. It's a, it was a pretty uh, bold statement that Paul is making at this time in the patriarchal society he lived in. To say the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, was a pretty profound and bold statement that he was making regarding mutual submission in Christian marriage. And marriage is a submission competition in many ways. It's, it's, a, it's a competition of not how do I get so much what I want, but how can I give and love you in the way that God has loved me. Uh, this passage really offends almost everybody. It offends the, the, the ascetic person who wants to just deny all the physical aspects of our body and just, you know, forget about the sexual aspects of ourselves. It offends that. It offends the Corinthians who wanted maybe to live that way. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the way God has called you to live. When you're married, your spouse has some claim on your body. But it also offends the, the liberated person who says that relationships shouldn't be characterized by obligation. Paul manages to offend all of them with these words by calling them to something higher. Uh, scholar and theologian Gordon Fee says this about this verse. He says, too many still treat sex as though it were the privilege of the husband and the duty of the wife, but not so. It is the privilege and duty of both together. Each belongs to each other. This is often why when I'm meeting with couples who are considering marriage or even on the, as a part of the wedding ceremony, I'll use these words, what you're entering into is not a contract but a covenant. And it's very different. A contract you enter into will lay out the terms. This is what I'm going to do, and this is what you're going to do. And if you don't do what you're going to do, I don't have to do what I'm going to do. You've broken the contract, and I don't have to do what I'm going to do. But Christian marriage isn't a contract, it's a covenant. A contract says, I will if you will. A covenant says, I will. Period. This is what I'm committing myself to. I'm committing myself, I will love and cherish you. I will be with you in sickness and in health, richer or poor. This is the covenant I'm entering. This is the commitment that I'm making to you. This is the relationship that God has called us to. It's concern for the other over myself. It's not a, just a submission competition. It's an honor competition. That's another way Paul puts it. Romans chapter 12 says to honor one another above yourselves. It's an honor competition. Can I honor you more then you would even honor me. This is out of step with a world that says, what do you get out of it? This is out of step with a world that's always calculating the return on investment. With a world that always wants to know, hey, if I'm going to do this, what am I going to get out of it? Is this going to make me happier? Is this going to make my life better? Is this going to enrich me? The gospel life that lives in the cruciform shape, the, the shape of the cross, the life of Christ says, I'm going to give without 
understanding without expecting what I'm going to get out of it. Now, let me be careful. Don't hear what I am not saying. I don't think this is a verse that is condoning abuse or uh, in, in a relationship, physical or emotional abuse in a relationship. Be careful. Don't hear. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. Uh, those things cross lines that we would need to talk about what's going on, get you help in those situations. That's not what these verses are saying. But I do think these verses are warring against our flesh that always wants my needs met in a relationship, that always is looking out for what I'm going to get out of it, what I'm going to benefit from it, you give to me, always keeping score and of my side and what I get. Always offering grace to myself and criticizing another. That's what these verses, I think, are warring against. To say, no, can you love the way Christ has loved you? Laying down his life when you and I were living as his enemies. We're still, uh, that this life, this, these verses would call us to a higher way of love that is more than a transactional relationship that is not simply looking out for what I can get out of it but is looking for an opportunity where I can love what we talked about last week is this gospel-centered way of life stops asking the question of what are my uh, rights under the law and starts asking the question what are my opportunities and responsibilities under grace that because I am an object and a recipient of God's grace, then what does that obligate, what responsibility and what opportunity does that give me in loving another? That this way of life, it's not an easy way of life. Um, and it may look foolish for you to go first. Because that's what it takes often, to go first, right? Because I'll do it if they do it, but will you go first? There's a great book that came out many years ago called Love and Respect, and it plays on some stereotypes, but in one way it says that oftentimes women are looking for to be loved and men are looking to be respected. That doesn't fit every relationship, but you know, oftentimes the stereotype kind of holds true. But here's what often happens is a woman might say, look, I'll respect him when he loves me. And a man, a husband might say, I'll love her when she respects me. And no one's willing to go first, and so it creates a downward spiral where, I, where the authors of this book would say, no, the, the way of Jesus would say, no, I will go first. I will love when I don't feel respected. I will respect when I don't feel loved. I will demonstrate the love of Jesus that I have received to my husband, my wife, in this relationship that God has called me to. And this is necessary uh, to happen in rela if relationships are going to flourish, not only according to the Bible, but according to the latest research. Julie and John Gottman, uh, who are researchers in marriage and relationships, John Gottman for Harvard for many years, has uh, looked at many couples in their relationships and how they, uh, what makes relationships and marriages flourish. And they interviewed more than 3,000 couples, and they followed them for some 20 years and they've also studied 40,000 couples who are about to enter therapy. And here's one of the things, a couple of things they found. They found that during conflict, you need to maintain a positive to negative interaction, if you're going to make it through this and flourish, of five to one. 
Five to one. Five positive interactions to one negative interaction. They watched couples for 15 minutes and they counted the interactions. And six years later, the couples that had the five to one ratio had the best relationships. That when you were going through a conflict, you were still maintaining this ratio of five positive interactions, five compliments to one negative interaction would help your marriage survive. When you weren't in conflict, by the way, you're wondering, what's it like when you weren't in conflict? Well, you don't have to maintain five to one. When you're not in conflict, it's 20 to one. If you're going to keep yourself out of conflict, and if you're going to have to have a flourishing marriage, that those marriages that flourish and last have a 20 to one ratio of positive interactions to negative interactions. Yeah, it might be why Pastor Erwin Lutzer tells the story of a woman who went to a lawyer and said, I want to get a divorce, but I really hate my husband and I want to really hurt him in the process of the divorce. And so what should I do? And the attorney said to her, look, you're going to divorce the guy anyway. So do this for the next three months. Don't criticize him at all. Speak only well of him, build him up. Every time he does something nice, commend him for it. Tell him what a great guy he is and do that for three months. And after he thinks that he has your confidence and love, hit him with the news and it'll hurt him even more. (laughs) The woman thought, I can't go wrong on this. I'm divorcing the guy anyway. Why should I speak badly about him anymore? I'm going to speak only well of him. So she complimented her husband for everything he did for three months. She told him what a great man he was. And then after three months, they forgot about the divorce and went on a second honeymoon. (laughs) I don't know if that's a true story, but it bears out and illustrates the research that this, this aspect of, you know, the ratios of compliments and positive interactions to negative can do wonders for your marriage flourishing. Um, and lasting for the long haul. Look, this is risky. This is vulnerable. This can seem foolish because you're going to put yourself out there at times and it won't be returned the love that you offer. You're going to put yourself out there at times and you're going to get hurt at times. And that is at times what it is like to live these foolish gospel-centered relationships It can't always be a calculation of what I'm going to get out of it and will I get hurt. It's this walking in the ways of our Lord who gave his body, who did not consider his body to be his own, but gave it up on a cross that he might redeem and purchase us. In fact, if you go back to the end of chapter 6, Verse 19, Paul writes these words in 619, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This looks different at different stages of marriage. And I'll ask our worship team to come back as we Uh, prepare to respond and wrap up. But it looks different at different stages of marriage. When you are first married, it might look like just remembering that you are still married. It might look like just remembering that there's another person I have to take into account in my decisions, right? 
uh, that you first get married and you, you know, sometimes you don't even remember. You get out of your car, you start walking into the mall, and you forget there's another person with you because you have been living your life by yourself. And that's, that's sometimes what it looks like to recognize in your body that there's another person. It means sharing your checking account and saying, oh, okay, I'm going to spend money. It's going to affect the other person. I need to be thinking about that. I didn't have to think about that before, right? You get a little older and a little further along in your relationship, and, you know, it means something different because now you've learned that the other person, shocker, is also a sinner, also has baggage, also has things in their past that they are trying to work through, also has things that God is working on in them. And you learn grace, and you learn patience, and you learn how to love them in the midst of that, and how to be patient, and how to recognize that God is going to finish the work in you, in them, and God did not bring you along to create them in your own image, right? That that's not God's call on your life. That sanctification is God's process in work in their life, and you learn to be patient and to love them and to care for them. But then as you go on in life, it comes to different stages of what that means in your body, right? Let me, let me close with this. Uh, as, I, as I thought about this, and how this affects other people and, uh, and people have lived this out. I think I've had the privilege as a pastor many times seeing this lived out well in many ways. Um, one person I think of is George Lavelli. I've seen many people in our church walk through illnesses with their spouse late in life, and George was one of those people. And at times... You know, this is the way that God will call you to live out your vows and to recognize that your body is not your own. George and Ginny were married for many years before Ginny was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia. And after George couldn't care for her on his own anymore, and she needed 24-hour round-the-clock care. He had her, found a facility that would take care of her. And she was in there. You never know how long it's going to be, Right? Uh, in fact, George called it Alzheimer's. He called it the long goodbye. Because you never know how long it's going to last. You're saying goodbye a lot and for a long time, but you don't know for how long that's going to be. And at first, you know, Jenny's in there, and, and you go and you visit, and it's just like visiting someone in the hospital. And you talk and you remember and you have a good time, but as the days and the years go by, things change. And you wonder and you realize they don't remember everything you remember. Eventually, you know, eventually Jenny remembers that she knows you, but she doesn't quite know who you are. And you realize that maybe they've stopped using your name, but they seem to recognize your face. And what does that mean? What does it mean in that moment, in that season of life, to say that my body is not my own? spouse has some claim. What it meant for George was that uh, on his way to the life care facility in Lexington, he would stop by Shaw's and he would pick up a pint of ice cream because that was Jenny's favorite. And so he'd pick up some ice cream and every day he would go to that facility and he would open up that pint of ice cream and he'd take a spoon out and he'd feed his wife ice cream. 
And that's what, that's what 1 Corinthians 7, 4 meant for George in those moments. That my body is not my own. That someone else has a claim. This is the Christian way of living. This is the gospel way of life. Not because George is some great person or has some great ability or any one of us are. Not because, you know, isn't that great that, you know, to, to bring praise to ourselves. But as followers of Christ, because this is how Christ demonstrated his love towards us. That he gave his life that we might have life. That this is the love and the grace that I have received. And so this is the love and the grace that I have to offer. And so this is the gospel way of life, not asking what are my rights under the law, what will I get out of it, but asking what are my opportunities and responsibilities under grace of what I've received from God. I'm going to pray, um, and as the team plays a song, I'm going to invite you to do two things. If you're here and you're married, I'm going to invite you, if your spouse is here, to stay seated. And maybe you take a moment just to pray together. And maybe your marriage is going awesome. And you would just say, Lord, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the blessings. But maybe it's not so awesome. Maybe it's been a difficult time. Maybe it's just been a difficult morning. And maybe you would just say, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us? Would you give us grace? Maybe you're in here and your situation's not that different than George and Jenny's spouse isn't with you. Maybe you'd pray and ask for God's strength and blessing upon them in this time of their life. Maybe you're sitting in here and you're not married. I bet you know someone who is. And I'll bet something else. I bet you know someone who's maybe having a tough time in their marriage. Would you take a couple minutes and pray for them? Would you ask God to minister to them during this time? Lord, now, this isn't an easy message. This isn't an easy passage. And yet it's your word to us in your church today. Father, would you speak to us and show us those places in our lives where we need to change to be more like Jesus, to live lives that not only believe the gospel, but live our lives in the shape of the gospel. Would you lead us today and speak to us? I pray for couples who are in this room. I pray for marriages. Lord, I thank you for the ones that are flourishing and in a good season. May you continue to bless them and use them to bless others. Lord, I lift up the ones who are struggling, who come into this room this morning not knowing if they're going to make it, not knowing how they're going to make it, and maybe coming to the understanding that they can't make it on their own. But Lord, this morning, would you remind them that you are the God of the resurrection, that you are the God of all hope, that you are the God that brings life out of death. And would you do that this morning in these marriages? Would you breathe life into what may seem like a lifeless situation, Lord? God, would you let us know that there is always hope in Jesus? God, if there are places that we need to repent of, then show us that, Lord. Give us the courage to fall upon your grace this morning. Lord, lead us. Help us to live our lives and our relationships, and specifically this morning, Lord, our marriages, with Jesus at the center of it all. 
Jesus' name.